Good morning, taxonomists, and welcome to the Natural Selection. This week's theme, Metamorphosis. Coming to you today from across the globe, we're definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, I'm Nick, and there's Nick, hello, and Naomi, hi, and we're here today to talk to you about metamorphosis. We're going to follow the standard pattern. We'll be doing a little bit of the news and then talk about our theme in depth and in detail. Um, so that brings us to the news. You guys have anything good for us today? Yeah, I've got something good. It's 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 interesting. I would say it's kind of neutral in the happy, sad scale, but it's definitely interesting. All right, Nick, do you have happy, good, sad? I would say that my news is fine. Fine. Right, neutral and fine. Okay, well, you know what? It's a hard time, so we'll take it. We'll take what mm-hmm. we can get. Yeah. Would you want to get us started, Naomi? Yeah, sure. So um, my news this week focused on a paper that was published in Nature Communications, um, and it was looking um, at a fossil that was found from the early Cambrian. Um, so it was a what they think is a parasite that it was encrusting on a brachiopod, and they think this may be the earliest example of a parasite that has been found. So it would have been a kleptoparasite. They found these tube-like organisms encrusting the shell of brachiopods, and their positioning indicates that they would have been probably stealing food, so like kleptoparasitism from these brachiopods. They also found evidence that these brachiopods that had these encrusting tubes had lower mass than the ones that didn't have tubes, which shows that it was probably negative for parasitism. But it's interesting in terms of the uh, Cambrian, because that was a time of a lot of innovation and diversity. So um, if parasitism uh, was around then, this may be part of the thing that fuels this innovations and diversity, or could be. Cool. Good thing we talked about kleptoparasitism <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. Yes, exactly. I was like, I was sad that, I, that this article wasn't published sooner. It could have fitted in nicely with that, but it was only published um, at the beginning of last week, so... Cool that we are. We have like a preserved sign of one of the earliest, like of well, now it's like super, super early in terms of animal evolution. But it's cool that we have that in preserved form. Yeah, because um, parasitism is so prevalent now, but it's really hard to identify. Obviously, in the fossil record, particularly, like to be sure that it actually is parasitism, um, and you know that they're like um, negatively affecting this animal that they're on. So. Um, it's interesting that they can kind of show this in this paper. I mean, nature is, you know, you're going to say, oh, yeah, we've got the first blah, blah, blah. And nature's like, what's that? Tell us more. Um, but when you can actually show that they have the lower body size, that's really cool. That's like mm. awesome. Um, and who knows if that's actually what's happening? I mean, I don't know. But who, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, cool. I would say that's pretty positive news. That's what I'm getting at. It's nice to have another piece of the puzzle. I love parasites. I think they're really fun. So, Nick, do you have any news? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you mean to study them? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, I have news. (laughs) All right, let's hear your news, Nick. Um, Fine. It's fine, right? It's fine news. Uh, I read it and I was like, 
I think I think you'll agree this is the correct noise that I I, I made when I first read it was oh. <laughs> and I hope my hope is that after hearing this noise that you will also say so they found a fossil scientists as they are wont to do they regularly find fossils they're probably the main culprits of fossil finding i'd say and uh what they found was an armored dinosaur from the early cretaceous which is uh, i'm going to try and say this but this is another hard word to say and i've been practicing which is the um ornithia uh nodosauridae and they analyzed its fossil uh, uh its stomach contents of fossils and they found that it was about 80% plant-based, uh, mainly ferns, uh, which you'd expect um, from from the from the Cretaceous period, uh, especially for a herbivorous um, dinosaur. But they also found um, what was essentially coal. Hmm. And it wasn't this uh, that they was eating coal; it was probably eating uh, uh, charcoal. So. Um, Herbivores even now eat, eat, eat charcoal. It, it might be accidentally picked up when foraging for other things or like deliberately swallow for any number of reasons. But um, they found that this charcoal was in their stomach and it probably suggested that the, there may have been a forest in that time that used fire for regrowth. It could be evidence of that because we do know that forests nowadays do that. So perhaps it's evidence that back then that was also taking place. That's wow. cool. Huh. I mean... Huh. Hmm. That's really interesting, yeah. I don't know, I feel like that was more interesting than you give it credit for, Nick. I liked it. Oh, I should be a more of a hype man to the dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> the dinosaurs get all the hype. No, I think that, that that's an interesting find, but maybe a more tenuous connection to a, a takeaway than the parasite study. It's interesting to think that maybe forests did that sort of fire renewal thing back then, but couldn't I was the forests say, just have burned? It definitely definitely wasn't eating takeaways. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I have something I want to share with you guys. Not news, but it's actually old news. Um, but it's an Instagram account that I think our listeners might enjoy. And if you guys haven't seen it either, you might enjoy as well. Um, the Instagram handle is hunger for words and the word for is the number four. Um, and it is run by a human, um, who is a speech language pathologist and it basically follows the adventures in communicating with her dog who she has trained to associate different meanings with words in like one of those recordable buttons that you can get that used to say like, that was easy that you press and it says something that you record, but she records it saying things like walk, outside, um, eat, play, sleep, uh, want, uh, mad, and like basically has taught the dog all of these words, something upwards of like two dozen words at this point. And the dog is starting to put together sentences and like say the things that it wants to communicate. And then the owner will like go over and press the button. The human will go over and press the buttons and like say what she wants to say back to the dog. And they communicate in this way. And each video on the Instagram has these like little vignettes that are so entertaining to watch. I'm not a speech language pathologist, so I don't know, you know, if what actually is being communicated here or if it's just sort of like Pavlovian, but it's really cool to watch because it seems like the dog really knows what it's saying. 
That's so cool. I need to um, need to look that up. I thought it might fit in with the not with our theme, but with our like overall animals are amazing vibe we have going on. Is that what yeah, we're going to be doing? Oh shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, no, we're, re- we're, we're, sorry. We have the very serious task of figuring out, um, the order of life as taxonomists. <laughs> right. Sorry. Back to that. Um, so I think that brings us to the end of our news section today. Um, unless anything crazy has happened to you guys in the last couple of days that you want to share with the group. Just kidding. Um- <laughs> well, not me personally, but I do have a brief, uh, a brief thing of sort of news that kind of fits with our metamorphosis um, theme. It's that um, 17-year cicadas are emerging in the U.S. Um, yeah, which is really cool. So, um, if you guys aren't familiar, basically these cicadas stay in um, like larva form. Uh, there's two different versions. There's 13 years and 17 years cicadas, um, which is incredible. And they sync up these different species, and there's about eight of them. Um, and then they all emerge at once. So basically, that uh, it's like a tactic to try and avoid predation because there's so many that they, um, too many for the predators, effectively. That's cool. Whoa. That is so cool. Yeah. Um, do you guys you some... don't have cicadas in the UK, do you? Or in Ireland? No. Don't you think they are? They just scream. They just scream and they scream. We have foxes. They sound similar. (laughs) (laughs) And school children. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We have grasshoppers, which aren't a million miles away, are they? I think so. The same order, maybe? Cicadas are in the hemiptera, and the grasshoppers are in a different family or a different order. Oh, cool. But they're in the same order as the true bugs. Oh. That's cool. Are they crickets? Or is that crickets and grasshoppers? Am I confusing them with cicadas? Yeah, I think grasshoppers and crickets are in the same. Yeah, it's cool, though, because there's, there's also, like, annual ones that just come out every year, but these ones, it's just really interesting that they, like, sync up somehow. Well, it's... Right, so... The cycles they go on are nearly always prime numbers. Mm-hmm. So you don't get 12-year cicadas because um, they would turn up when other things do. So if you have a prime uh, number one, it means they're less likely to cross over. So you get things like 17-year um, cicadas, 5-year cicadas, 7-year cicadas, 13-year cicadas. Um, so, yeah, they don't bump into each other. I've got some cicada for you. That's the cicada. Cool. So that wraps up the news this week. Looking forward to some more fine and neutral news next week. Or maybe we'll get something bad. We'll see. Um, then next, after the break, our main theme, metamorphosis. Cool. Welcome back, guys. Um, time for part two. Theme. Metamorphosis. Some big changes come into town. Transformative. As a matter of fact, there are many things that metamorphosize, metamorphose, metam change um, that we'll be talking about over the next few minutes. But I think we should get started with insects. The first thing that came to my head when I was looking at metamorphosis was, was in fact, insects. 
Um, there's two main types of metamorphosis within insects. Um, complete metamorphosis um, and then simple metamorphosis. Uh, so the fancy names for those. So holometabolis is complete metamorphosis. Um, so basically it means there's like a pupa or a chrysalis stage. So say think of a butterfly, a moth. And then there's hemimetabolis where basically the larva, the, the nymph, is quite similar to the adult but just gets uh, increasingly larger and slightly different but less dramatic of a change. Which is more common. Um, so interestingly, uh, complete met- uh, metamorphosis is more common, and actually um, 45 to 60% of all known living species are holometabolic insects, oh, wow. which is a lot. Wow. Yeah. Um, so there's interesting discussions on why how these evolved and like why they evolved. Um, so it's widely regarded that the base for insects and hexapods, which is a larger group that contains insects, is no metamorphosis. Um, And then from that, um, hemi or simple metamorphosis evolved. And then after that, the complete metamorphosis came later. Um, It seems to have only evolved once. This is quite well documented in the phylogenetic tree. But yeah, it's interesting why, why it would be so prevalent. There's some uh, thought that it's because you're able to occupy multiple different niches at different life stages but then that doesn't really explain why there's the two different types of metamorphosis why one would be so much the complete metamorphosis like changing entirely um, and one thing I found in my research is the idea that it might allow for more evolution um, so because you had this whole new form you've got um, another opportunity in which to make even more dramatic or bigger changes. Um, something I was thinking on myself was also if you have these two different niches and two different, almost completely different life stages, it seems like it gives more room for like natural selection as well to act. It's just my own sort of thinking, but I thought that it give, yeah it gives more room for kind of things to change. Also, I suppose they're less likely to compete with their younger selves. Because mm. if they're just smaller, they'd probably be going after similar prey or food. Um, but yeah, if they're completely different, then they're probably not going to be eating the same thing. Potentially, yeah. I think some that even even in the um, simple metamorphosis, they still sort of can split niches, but um, it's probably not quite as dramatic as the complete metamorphosis. Well, that's interesting. You're talking about the evolution of metamorphosis because there is a it's quite a controversial thing on why it evolved because it's quite. When you think of how we're taught evolution, um, going up, you think like gradual changes. But the idea of a complete metamorphosis where you sort of harden your shell and become a completely different animal doesn't seem like something that can be done by baby steps intuitively. So it's quite difficult to explain within your own head. So some scientists have come for alternative explanations, um, which have, <laughs> yeah, uh, riled feathers. So one of my favorite ones was... Um, there's uh, an idea that caterpillars evolved from uh, onychophorans by hybridogenesis. And this is by Donald Williamson from the University of Liverpool. And we know that this, uh, uh, this type of metamorphosis, this complete metamorphosis, evolved only once. So that all um, insects that do this are from a common ancestor. That's not controversial. Donald Williamson suggested it evolved due to hybrid animals, where an insect that underwent simple uh, metamorphosis mated 
with what he suggests would have been a velvet worm. So velvet worms are a very, very old family. You can trace their lineage in the fossil record, I think, nearly to the Cambrian. I think it's pretty close. Um, uh, they used to be able to find that they would have, um, they would be underwater, but now they have a spiracle, so they actually live on land. You can find them in New Zealand. But he suggests that uh, an insect mated with this velvet worm, and the larval stage resembles the velvet worm, so the caterpillar, and the adult stage resembles the insect. So it's actually a combination of these two animals creating a new animal with two life stages. But this has been discredited a lot. So a lot of people got very angry with this. So he suggested some evidence, he suggested some genetic evidence that some of the proteins made by these animals that do this are similar to proteins made by the velvet worm. And he said that, in fact, these insects would probably have a larger genome than the velvet worm if this was the case. But looking at the genome of the velvet worm, uh, some velvet worms have genomes bigger than nearly all insects. So it sort of disproved him immediately, made a lot of scientists quite angry. And it's almost certainly not true. And there's an allegation that it was uh, pushed by another prominent scientist, uh, which was Lynn Margulis. Have you guys heard of her? Yeah. I'm a big fan of hers. Yeah. So she did some amazing work where she developed the idea of hybridogenesis being the origin of organelles in eukaryotes. So how we got um, mitochondria or chloroplasts, what they actually were was a bigger cell swallowing a smaller cell. And when she first revealed this, she was sort of laughed out of town and she had to really push her ideas. And now it's commonly accepted that that's a fact. So there was a suggestion that she puts a lot of uh, she sort of put her weight behind it. And that's why it got published. And then it, a lot of scientists sort of turn around and be like, no, no, we can prove this isn't the case. Wow, wow. that's interesting. Scientific politics, too. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you were describing, it does seem like a little bit far-fetched to me but I like I can understand um I don't know a huge amount about either species in terms of like genetics so I don't know that maybe they do share these genes but it just seems like yeah a little bit of a of a of a step I think the part of the problem is that no one can really explain that evolutionary step yet can they so there's sort of a black hole that uh can be filled by any suggestion so people are looking for that information to sort of bridge that gap between the two types of metamorphosis and this was uh, an attempt to do that yeah that's the perfect place for um to direct your research if you're a young researcher looking for something to do it's find mm. a, a unsolved mystery and then go after it as opposed to a solved mystery, which <laughs> <be a> mystery. <laughs> cool that's um that's really interesting i it's hard for me to believe that a velvet worm, which is so distantly related to a insect, could hybridize. I mean, even things like like mammal species, which are all very cl- tightly clustered together, like closely related mammal species, don't have viable offspring when they hybridize a lot of the time. So it seems like the rules of animal hybridization maybe work differently in the insect world. I'm not sure. <sighs> I don't know if there's evidence for it. So Lynn Margulis suggests that animal hybridization might be the driving force behind a lot of evolution and that we sort of disregard it. Um, but there's not a great deal of evidence for this. But it is an interesting idea. But yeah, evolution is probably not driven by one idea. It's probably um, lots of different things working together. But it is kind of an odd thing to think because naturally when we think of caterpillars and butterflies, they are completely different animals. I mean, they're the same animal. But if you looked at them, they're ridiculously different. They, they, any child will tell you that. 
Um, and so it's quite difficult to marry that idea and I head that they're just the same animal doing different things. And of course, that change itself is quite mysterious because butterflies will lock themselves in a chrysalis and then literally melt down their body and rebuild it again um, from sort of like a cellular goo to make what essentially is a brand new animal out of its old cells, um, which is a very, very odd thing to sort of get our head around. Um, I do know another fact about that. Yeah, please. So uh, we don't have the best memories, um, whether it be about films or um, <laughs> <laughs> or names of papers or animals or what family um, cicadas are in. Um, so it's sort of impressive when animals can do impressive memory tricks. And one of the most impressive memory tricks I've read about was um, a retention of memory th- through metamorphosis. So this is the case that can a moth remember what it learned as a caterpillar? And it's uh, 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 by a woman called uh, Douglas. Um, and um, she released a paper where what she had done is she'd electrically shocked caterpillars and at the same time basically sprayed nail polish remover. So nail polish remover has quite a strong smell. And then when they metamorphosize, when they're adult butterflies, she would uh, tempt them with food in Y-shaped tubes. And in one tube, there was, I think, neutral food. And in the other tube, there was food with the smell of nail polish remover. And she found that the the butterflies of the caterpillars that had been sprayed and, um, while they got the electric shocks avoided the tubes with the added smell. And over 70% of those butterflies picked the tube without the smell, suggesting that it retained memories. And this changed our view of metamorphosis, because as I said before, we thought that they'd melted completely down and built it back up again. But if they did that, they couldn't retain memories because there'd be no structures to hold those memories. So this suggests that when they're melting down, they are actually keeping structures that we don't quite understand yet. That's really interesting. That's that's really cool. That like the idea that memory can be kept. And that I suppose it, it would make sense. It could be beneficial. Like if they've spent time learning these things to avoid or these things to be beneficial to keep this knowledge um that is something that actually i sort of found as well that there are actually certain organ systems that are persisting that they don't completely break down um so some things are re-specified but that was something that i had found as well that there is evidence that they do keep certain structures when they change i don't love the part about caterpillars getting electrically shocked but otherwise really interesting I mean, I, I didn't love that. That wasn't that wasn't why I did the study. <laughs> <laughs> like, Ignore this really the cool science bit. Where this woman, yeah. she just shocked all these caterpillars. I don't know what and happened after re- that. She removed their nail polish, and I stopped reading. We just talked about hollow metabolis insect insects that go undergo a complete transformation, and but something that you said, Nick, that I thought was interesting is that they're the same insect. They're the same animal from beginning to end of their life. Um, but something that uh, I want to enter into the conversation and maybe say, is this metamorphosis or is this something else, um, is the case of a strange slime mold called Dictyostelium discoidium. Uh, it lives in the soil, and most of its life it is like a little amoeba, like a single-celled little goo guy, sort of like warming around in the dirt. Um, and then 
at some that phase of its life it is called um the vegetative stage that's yeah the vegetative stage and then this reaches a certain point when there's i guess enough other little amoeba of the same discoidium species in the area that they start to like hang out together they like start to wiggle and move and like get together and they conglomerate basically they like attach onto each other and each one is its own individual there are all these single-celled single-celled organisms but as they come together they start to sort of move into different regions of the body and then like shift their bodies their morphology shifts so they almost begin to form different tissue layers until eventually they are a many-celled community of basically like a, a slug uh, you could see it with your eyes and it moves around. It like moves like a slug moves by like wiggling its body and moving on the ground um, using these different layers of the single cell organisms as almost like organs within the slug. And then one part of the slug will feed and then it gets dispersed and sort of broken down by some of these amoeba inside and then dispersed to the rest of the amoeba. So the whole community is now functioning as an animal almost like a moving feeding creature and then it's not done at a later point in its life it decides okay we're done being a slug and it just stops there and it goes sits down roots itself into the ground and then some of these little the cells that are now cells part of this multicellular singular single organism grow up a long stalk like a mushroom and at the end they have a fruiting body and it releases asexual spores. And then the spores go out into the air and land and become single-celled amoeba again. Um, so it has like a four-stage life cycle, including a single-celled amoeba-like phase, an animal-like phase, and the like fungus phase. So I don't know if that's metamorphosis because the cells themselves are not changing so much, or if it's like something totally weird or other than that. But I think it's one of the coolest things in the natural world. That is so cool. That's really interesting. I think it fits with metamorphosis. They like change their like physiology in a way and their structure. Um, and they become a new thing. So I think that fits. It's That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it was sort of making me think about like, I guess, like the evolution of multicellular life. And I wonder like if this happened in a similar way. Like these single-celled organisms were like, this is a good idea. It's mm. just cool. Yeah. It's cool that it happens on such a, a short time scale that like within the lifespan of the cell, it lives in all of these different ways. Mm. So anyway, that's what I wanted to say about slime mold. Mm. Um, so are they a fungi? Um, <sighs> slime mold is sort of like algae. In, in a categorization where algae, some of them are plants, some of them are fungi, some of them are um, bacteria, and the slime mold are also, like, slime molds themselves are equally sort of bizarrely distributed throughout the tree. But I think that this group is in the protist, the pro, it's a protist, so it's in, like, the amoeboid protist group. Oh, okay. Cool. 
I suppose, yeah, it's not just insects that do the metamorphosis, is it? I found other research on other animals um, that do metamorphosis. Um, it was interesting because it wasn't really something that I would have naturally thought of as metamorphosis, but um, in fish, for example, the salmon, uh, it's a fish that changes from different types of water. So it goes from uh, seawater to freshwater. And then this evolves a drastic, drastic change in behavior and physiology to do with osmoregulation. They're uh, called, their water called diadromous sorry if i'm saying that wrong fish basically and it's all to do with osmoregulation which is kind of something that i i find a little hard to get my head around uh salt and water in your body and um, so in seawater uh the concentration of uh sodium nacl is a lot higher than in your body so basically you're losing a lot of water in in, in sea in seawater and you're gaining a lot of um an influx of nacl which you don't really want uh so in uh, seawater, uh, the salmon would drink a lot to try and gain water and try and lose uh, NaCl. But in freshwater, they don't they don't drink at all. Their kidney function is also very important. Um, so freshwater, they produce a lot of very dilute urine because uh, they're trying to balance. So they're trying to um, maintain the salt that they have. Um, and then in salt water, their urine production is very small and very concentrated. I never thought I'd be so fascinated by fish we. Um, and there's there's other fish that do it the opposite way. Uh, so eels, uh, they switch. They go from uh, freshwater to seawater. So salmon pee is cool in that, Gnomes. I know you're into that. But um, uh, how do you feel about tunicates? Yeah, they're pretty cool pretty cool they're pretty cool they filter feed so they're quite fun and if you see them they uh they're basically like a sponge but they're quite unusual in the sense that the most of their life they spend attached to a rock on the sea seabed or the ocean floor and they filter feed they usually have two holes where they suck water in one and pump it up the other and they filter out everything they need but what's unusual about them is even though they look a lot like sponges and most people would look at them and not be that excited they are the sister group to all vertebrates. Mm. So they are more closely related to things like hagfish and lampreys than they are to lancelets, which are often also thought of the sister group to vertebrates. There's sort of a, a bridge between them. But they have a very unusual larval stage. So while their adult stage doesn't look much like a, a vertebrate, their larval stage does. And it doesn't look a million miles off a tadpole, but there are some key structural differences. But it's it's not a million miles away. And this swims about the sea and it will grab onto a rock with its mouth and turn into a, a tourniquet. But this is how we know that they're related to vertebrates, because the larval stage has a notochord which develops into a backbone in vertebrates. It's that notochord which sort of a, that ner a nerve strip of nerves that goes down our back that we have as well. But its metamorphosis is interesting because one key part of metamorphosis is quite good when you're studying it is if a body changes, you can understand what that body part was for. So, for example, if you were thinking of, of tools, if someone was in a boat in a rowboat with you and they were using an oar and then when they put down the oar and picked up the fishing rod and started fishing, you could then deduce, ah, well, the oar is for moving the boat and the fishing rod is for getting food. 
and that you would see that these two bits of kit were being used in different ways. But what's very interesting is what undergoes structural change in the tunicates. So after completing its larval stage, the tunica gets rid of its brain. Sort of. So it still has a... Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It still has a a ganglion remaining, but the cerebral ganglion reduces in size massively. And this is what the brain is in vertebrates. So that's our brain. Uh, It's their equivalent. So it does beg the question, guys, what is our brain for? Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) Um... And this is thinking, but not right at this moment. (laughs) Yeah, not not solving these questions, apparently. Well, this is difficult because a lot of our brain, we sort of assume is done for thinking or calculating or or coming up with language or smell or sight. Um, But for the tunica, it's not that important. So the reason it gave up its brain is because it had given up doing one thing, which was movement and it uses that brain to control movement and as soon as it doesn't need to move it doesn't need that brain anymore and there's a strong suggestion the reason that vertebrates have these brains like that is to control movement it needs a huge amount of computing power which we can tell now um if you think of all the amazing things that computers can do it can beat us at nearly every game uh it can you can even have almost recognizable conversations they can use language um They can make noise. They can sense light. All these things that we do. But have you ever seen robots that try and move? Yeah, they look weird. Yeah, they really, really struggle to make a walking robot with four limbs walking upstairs. This has been a huge uh, stumbling block in artificial intelligence. So it would suggest that our brain primarily is an organ that is specialized in moving our bodies. Wow, that's really interesting. That's cool. That's something that I hadn't really heard of before. Um, Obviously, it evolved to specialize in other things as well, but that was Mm -hmm. the driving force behind it. It was the ability for us to move and control our movements. Yeah, because I suppose with movement, you are also introducing a whole range of other senses that you need that you wouldn't need if you're just like chilling on the seafloor or filter feeding, you know. And it also reminded me as well, actually, of a neoteny, um, which I'm not sure is something that you guys have heard of, but um, it's basically when um, an organism stays in its juvenile phase instead of progressing. Um, and this is actually something that I'd heard for a potential origin for, for vertebrates is that tunicates stayed in their larval form and then vertebrates evolved from this larval form of tunicates. Um, I'm not sure this is, I, I learned this when I was still in, uh, uni in undergrad so it was a while ago so I'm not sure if the the times or thinking has progressed but it's interesting um it's an interesting idea and another animal that is uh neotonic or uses neoteny I'm not sure which way to say it um is an axolotl uh, which fits in with our metamorphosis theme uh basically they're um in the salamander newt family but instead of metamorphosizing metamorphosing and becoming adults they stay in this juvenile form with their gills um still out which is can cool. i just say uh, the salamander newt family sounds like it's like real old money new york 
<laughs> yeah. He's from the Salamander Newts. Um, but yeah, our Flubbles are cool. They're very cute looking. Um, but they think this is like a uh, adaptation in order to be able to, um, when when the environment isn't very beneficial, it's better to stay in your small larval stage. You don't need as much food. Um, then and then you can become an adult or progress further when the um, situation changes. I suppose. So that's cool. Yeah, so with axolotls, I know that if you expose them to certain chemicals, they just become a, a salamander, don't they? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, or so, yeah, something very similar. But axolotls can do some things that salamanders can't, which is like if you chop off an axolotl's leg, um, that they will uh, they will grow back, whereas salamander legs will not, as far as yeah. I understand. Yeah, I think so. That that's something I saw that they're they're much better at regeneration, um, at their their cell proliferation, um is is intact whereas i think in the adults it isn't so maybe that's another benefit as well that they they're able to um regenerate they are super cute looking though so if you haven't seen an axolotl google it yeah let's, <laughs> let's not overlook the real important things behind axolotls yes yeah <laughs> they do have a goofy smile they do they just look like they're like hey but what's do you know because i know Obviously, the salamander doesn't start looking like an axolotl. It starts as like a tadpole and then develops into something that looks like an axolotl and then becomes a salamander. So how do you know how long normally it would be an axolotl before sacking that off and becoming full-blown salamanders? I'm not sure, actually. I suppose it probably would depend on the species, but I can't imagine it would be too long. Like Generally, um, amphibians are, qu- are quite quick at um, develop- developing, I think. But I guess if they can control it, it, it probably does just depend on the environment. So sometimes it might be quicker than others, I suppose. Mm. And amphibians actually were mentioned last week as well uh, with in myths. Uh, the paradoxical frog. Yeah. I was thinking of that this week as well because its tadpole is larger. Yeah, it haunts your dreams, doesn't it? Yeah, a little. <laughs> <laughs> Neoteny is quite cool in uh, as an idea and the idea of staying juvenile because although it's not metamorphosis, I suppose mammals uh, go through changes in their lifetime. What would be considered like uh, simple metamorphosis for insects, we just get larger. Ours is even simpler where we are just growing. Uh, we're essentially in, all in the right order, but we're just, yeah, getting a bit bigger. Um, and humans have a longer juvenile stay, uh, stays than nearly every animal, don't they? Uh, to the point where we have to go through our own little metamorphosis, which is puberty. Mm. So obviously a difficult time for humans where um, we get an influx of hormones. We often have a growth spurt and we will get physical changes and our secondary sexual characteristics will start to show. But often animals will develop secondary sexual characteristics, which again is interesting because it shows you what they're being used for. So, uh, it's probably relating to reproduction, even if it's in a in a roundabout way. So lions' manes might offer them protection from their neck, but their neck is probably most likely to get injured in mating battles with other lions. So that's why it uh, only gets them when it needs it. And humans, we get things like uh, hair in different places, our voice changes. Um, yeah, we get structural body changes as well. So it's quite an intense metamorphosis uh, for us. 
But with the idea of neoteny, I find quite interesting, is mm. that an animal can develop from uh, the, basically being the juvenile stage of another animal. And a lot of people suggest that that's what domestication is. So the animals we've domesticated, we've essentially juvenilized the animals they're from. So a dog doesn't really act like a grey wolf. It acts like a baby grey wolf. Mm. And when wolves are very young, their, their behavior is indistinguishable from dogs. But it's when they get older that they become untrainable. And it's not it's not long. It's only a few weeks. But essentially, we selected for those juvenile traits to stick around. And those are the ones that we have in dogs. And this is true of other animals like cats. They're essentially acting like juveniles. Now, what's really interesting is the idea that one domesticated animal we perhaps overlook is humans. There's an idea that we domesticated ourselves and we are essentially juvenile apes. And I know that, um, yeah, you two have probably thought of me as a juvenile ape at least several times. <laughs> but uh, it could be true of all of us that we are we have selected for ourselves juvenile qualities. So rather than aggression, uh, we, we're not very aggressive compared to chimpanzees. Um, we are hairless, I think. it's No, hairless isn't related to that. What's another one? I can't remember. But yeah, we, we display uh, behaviours which would only be recognised in very young chimps or teenage chimps. That's, that's really, that's cool. I was reading last week about sexual dimorphism in bovids and where like the male, in some bovid species, the males have horns and the females don't. And the females often have like a sort of less striking coloration that's much more similar both in like size and pattern to the juveniles. And one theory for the reason that this is happening is when the males are territorial, they often have these sort of like battles between one another, especially at the edges of their territories. And if the juveniles and the females don't look like the males, they don't have these like striking patterns or the horns, then they won't set off that sort of like territorial um, instinct in the males. So, which makes sense for juveniles, you, which is also true in populations that aren't sexually dimorphic. The juveniles don't ever engage in like social hierarchy battles. Um, but in the ones where there's females that look like the juveniles, it allows them to move freely between territories and have access to many different ranges of, and the variety of food in them. So it's sort of like by keeping, by the females staying looking like the juveniles, they can like fly under the radar in a sort of like way that allows them freer access. So um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that like the idea of not changing can also be beneficial. Well, thank you guys so much for that transformative conversation. Um, we're going to wrap up today and next week we're going to talk about our new theme islands, um, not just about the islands, but about the things that live on them. That's all from Nick. Bye bye. That's all from Naomi. Goodbye. And that's all from me today. Goodbye.
you think that as a taxonomist, especially someone who is fond of mammals, I would be able to differentiate between foxes, hounds, ladies, and tramps. 